0: Welcome Tim. Hi,
1: Hi, thanks for having
0: me. In Peace Talks, a Norwegian diplomat is coming to terms with the loss of his English wife while chairing high-profile talks in a mountain resort in Austria. As he facilitates sessions between the two warring sides, Edvard reflects on his past with Anna and tries to find some inner calm. Tim, what inspired Peace Talks?
1: Well, first of all, uh, Sebastian um, Barry, the Irish writer, said recently that no one has an idea for a novel, or if they do, they should go away and get drunk and forget about it. And I sort of agree with that in the sense that I think, you know, the big concept novel or trying to tackle an issue, that's not the sort of writing I'm interested in writing or reading. So it didn't come as sort of some big... A philosophical idea I think more like most writers it was a few little elements were there from the beginning the title was was there quite early and there was this notion of uh, a man dealing with uh, trying to find peace at a at a macro level in bringing peace to a terrible conflict and then also struggling with an inter inner conflict and how did he come to peace with himself, if you like. So, so it it's the swing between those two things, which was the original inspiration for me.
0: And I love your central tenet that peace negotiations are like psychiatric counsellors. Um, they both have to listen, bite back their opinions, and are largely silent. Why did you want to write about this?
1: Well, that is a really interesting question because uh, when I submitted the book uh, for you know, consideration by by publishers, and it was accepted by Bloomsbury, uh, the editor there, Alice, Alexander Pringle, said she, was, you know, she thought most of the book was absolutely fine and, 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 and didn't need a lot of editing. But one thing she did suggest was that to bring out more of this, that the element of him having psychiatric counselling and, and a figure that sort of chimes in his head every now and again. So that was actually quite a late addition uh, and, and, and goes, I think, to point to the way that writing works. You know, it, it is largely the sole work of one person uh, but you know, editors are important, and even if they don't uh, you know, edit the, the book within an inch of its life, they can come up with something that can be really, really important. And so that element came in, and I agree with you. I mean, it's sort of almost serendipitous in the sense that it was suggested by someone else, but it fits in well, doesn't it? That idea that, um, uh, you know, he, he, Edward, is, Edward is such a sort of uh, cool, uh, calm customer on the whole, but sometimes he's very volatile. And, uh, and, and, obviously, when, when he suffers the terrible bereavement that he does, uh, he, he goes into some counselling. It's very much against his instincts and the type of personality he is. Um, but he does find some uh, peace. And in a way, uh, his counsellor, Caroline, uh, is playing the role that he's playing at the peace talks, which is sort of sucking all this stuff up and, and, and allowing him to, you know, them to let it all out so that, in the end, that some resolution is reached.
0: And um, how does your long term work with, with and on behalf of refugees, um, I'm thinking of the Refugee Council, welcome refugees, influence the book's tone? For example, you describe a scene where the couple um, host a refugee for two months and are hugely relieved when he leaves and they get their own space back. Um, they triple their donation to a refugee organisation to assert their guilt. Why did you include this scene? Well, the
1: book, uh, first of all, my first novel, *The House of Journalists*, was directly about refugees, and so very much drew on on my working experience for, for the last, you know, twenty odd years or so. Uh, although, sort of tangentially, uh, obviously, you know, no book is a sort of di- re- directly out of um, experiences you've had. Uh, this one is not about that as such, but it's about a person trying to do good in the world which I guess is what um, people who work on refugee issues, as I did, was trying to do. You know, there was an, in, an injustice, uh, human rights abuses, the, world, the way the world treats refugees is not very good. You'd like to see it treated better, but I, 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 I have always been uncomfortable with the notion that people who work with refugees are somehow sort of innately better than people who work in, I don't know, banks or supermarkets or what have you. Uh, you know my experience is that you know they 're a mixed bag you know most of them are lovely, but some of them are not you know and there 's very mixed motives for for working on this issue and uh, so i i in a sense, I drew a little bit of that and, and and largely i should say my own my myself in that uh you know it doesn 't follow that because you 're doing a good thing in the world that you are sort of good all the time, you can at times be a bit of an s h i t you know and and on the whole i, I don 't think uh that you know i i i think that Edvard is a good man, and and Anna's a good woman, his 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 wife. But you know, they they decided they would do that great thing that you know amazing people do, which is welcome a refugee into their own home. And then they just found, found they hated the experience and couldn't wait for the poor refugee guy um, to to leave. And in, in the end, they start dancing around their kitchen when they eventually does leave. And uh, and I, I wanted to sort of it was partly to suggest that because you do a good thing. Uh, you can do things that are a sort of a bit bit wicked. But I also you know, I have to say that I think it's a wonderful thing to invite a refugee into your own home and provide them with somewhere to live. But I, I don't think it's particularly bad if you are the type of person who doesn't want to do that. And, and and I should add, you know, I've worked in the refugee world for many years and I know there are lots of refugees homeless. I've got a spare room in my house and I've never had a refugee sleep here. Uh, that's, that's partly my, you know, my own disposition as well.
0: But they are essentially good people, and I wonder if you think we'll see a resurgent of good, decent people like Edvard when we come out of this pandemic. Do you believe the aftermath of, of COVID nineteen will change or affect peace negotiations in the future? And if so, how?
1: On the whole, I'm a I, I'm a
0: pessimist.
1: I think on in that regard, I I, 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 I don't think in the long term uh, that we change all that much. You know, I think progress is, there is progress in the world, but it's very uh, discontinuous and it's very incremental. And and, uh, I I think the sort of notion that some people are clinging on to, that somehow because we've had this very bad thing, good things might come out of it, uh, is is something that we're whistling to keep our spirits up, quite frankly. Uh, so I, I don't think that and I think you can slightly tell that by the way we've handled the pandemic, you know, it has in a way been every every man for himself in terms of how nations have dealt with it and uh, so I think, you know, I mean it there might be things like the, the utter incompetence with which Donald Trump has handled it in America might contribute to him losing the election and that would be good for the world but I, I don't sort of feel there'll be, you know, some uh, in some way, our souls will be bathed, and will emerge from this much better people than we are now. Um, uh, in fact, I think, if if anything, there'll be a bit of a sort of, you know, we'll all party uh, vigorously after it's all over. So, so no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not generally a, a great pessimist about things, but, but I, I don't, I don't subscribe to that notion that somehow something's going to massively
0: change in, in 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 the international spirit. I'm afraid. And you write poignantly about bereavement. Um, and it really did make me feel that this must come from personal experience but because you just write so well about it but um how does how does one write about grief and loss without turning off a reader um, I did you have to leaven your your poignant story with humor
1: well I mean on the last part I have done that you know so the book although uh, uh, the way it's been, we've talked about it so far, and, and, and your brilliant little Precy at the beginning suggests a book that's sort of sad and indeed perhaps a bit grueling. Um, and, and I'm you know there is a bit of that, quite a lot of that, that's the major tone of the book. There are sort of light-hearted episodes because I think that's what life's like, you know. I mean, just think you know now in the midst of this this uh, misery and fear, you know, there's a lot of laughter and, 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 and people uh, making light of it and making fun of it and this absurdity and joy as well. So there is in in in, in his life, uh, and and there is you know generally there's some sort of jokey bits in the book. Uh, as for uh, personal experience of bereavement, I, I am incredibly lucky. I'm 57 now, and I really haven't had a serious bereavement in my whole life, which is you know somewhat remarkable. I mean, obviously I know people who who have died, uh, uh, but I just think that you know you can just, if you've loved anyone, particularly for any length of time, if you just imagine what it would be like if they suddenly weren't there, uh, I I don't feel think you have to have had that experience to be able to plumb the depths of it imaginatively, and and that's sort of what I did. I I should add that um, one of the minor inspirations, for I wouldn't overstate this, is that I, I don't know him very well, but I know professionally a little bit, Brendan Cox, who was the uh, that the husband of Joe Cox, the, the Labour MP, was, you know, shockingly murdered. Uh, and, uh, and, and and obviously that was, you know, a profound shock to anybody who knew him. And I knew her a little bit. Uh, and so uh, that that element, the more shocking element of the book, and I'm, I realise I'm giving away a bit here, um, spoiler alert, uh, it, it was, uh, it was uh, it, you know, inspired. But I, let me, I mean, I've never talked to Brendan about that. I, I don't know him well enough to do so.
0: Well that actually does lead on very well to my next question which is why did you decide to make, and this is a spoiler alert, but I mean it, it comes, you know, we find out about this quite soon in the book, why did you decide to make Anna's death a violent one?
1: Well as I say, you know, p- partly there was that, that in, the, in the period when I was writing the book that terrible thing happened which we all remember from 2016. Uh, so I think uh, I, Consciously a bit but also subconsciously that must have influenced it because i knew right from the start that 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 you know you you'd, you'd realize that edvard was talking to someone who was absent uh you, you know, at the beginning it might be that she's just not there because he's away from home and then it emerges that she's 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 dead and then you know how, how is she going to die uh, and her death does come as a shock so it's partly that i think there was uh, i mean just in, in a sense this sounds a bit bit um cynical but you know in any book has to have a a bit of light and shade and drama so I mean I made it shocking because I wanted to shock the reader a bit and just have a moment Uh, but I but it wasn't it wasn't just that I think there was a a strong element in that the major tone and atmosphere of the book is one of sort of quiet um, it's sort of elegiac type of book and I wanted to have a bit where it suddenly speeds up. So there's uh, the 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 moment when Anna dies, and indeed there's a, the aftermath of her death, which in man, many ways is very shocking as well. Uh, those bits are sort of it's pell mell, so the style changes a lot. It's very fast, they, you know. Everything is chucked at it. There's plot twists and things going on left, right, and centre. Whereas in most of the rest of the book, not an awful lot happens. Quite frankly, you know, you're dwelling on on one man's innermost thoughts. So it, it was it was partly. Um, uh, about how the story and the, and the characters developed, and it was partly sort of narrative technique, if you like, you know, get a bit technical.
0: But it also fits in very well with that kind of public-personal theme, because it also means that Edvar's grieving is a pub becomes a public thing. A very personal, private thing that comes out there in the public, because everyone heard, you know, knows how his wife died. So I think it really does fit your, your theme really well, you know, to have, have it done like that. Um, I see you're in your shed, which I presume is your writing shed. So I do want to ask a quick question about your, your writing process, your writing routine, and how long it took you to complete the book.
1: Well, yeah, no, I, I am in my, my writing shed. It ma- makes me sound like David Cameron, so I feel a bit you know, wary of it. But I am lucky enough <laughs> to have a garden big enough to have a shed in it. And in that shed is where I, I have done this, the writing of this book very largely. Uh, the, the process. I, one thing I think that's sort of I- interesting is that unless you have a, uh, unless your first book is a is a huge hit, uh, there's no real guarantee that you know your second book is going to be uh, accepted by anyone. I think this comes a bit of a, of a shock. You know, I think uh, uh, people who are unpublished think, well, well, once you've once you cracked publication, once you know you're good for the next five or six novels, unless they're absolute turkeys. Uh, but it, it it's not the case anymore that, that that because you had you know one book published that people are going to like the uh, like the second one, and I wrote a book uh which actually i I quite enjoyed, but my agent absolutely hated and sort of advised me not to pass on to publishers oh. and I, I took her advice i 'm glad I did uh, because you know she she knows the business a lot better than I did so it, it, all that's a long way of saying is that I sort of in a sense slightly wasted two years on a book that where nothing uh, which, where nothing came of it, or, or not in the short term, anyway. And, and actually, I wrote peace talks relatively quickly. Uh, it's it's you know quite a short book. It's only about two hundred pages. Uh, and once I'd got into it, I was able to write at, 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 at relative speed. My my technique for writing, which I think is you know pretty much everybody's technique for writing, is to is to write uh, 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 little splurges. I mean, you get little moments where everything seems to come right. But even then, uh, if I have a splurge, I stop and go back because I'm suspicious of why I've had a splurge, you know. I, I, and so it's a, a constant process of writing, rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. I mean, I, I, I worry over every single word.
0: And, um, but you're quite a busy man. So when, when is your best time to write? Or do you just have to fit it in when you can r- around other work?
1: Yes. I mean, that's, that's the answer really. Uh, uh, until you know, very recently, I have um, had uh, f- full-time jobs that are more than full-time and lots of other things. So I just write when I, when I can, really. Um, I mean, you, you, you can find time. There are pl- you know, actually plenty of hours in the day to write. It's not so much the actual amount of physical time there is. It's that I just find it quite difficult to move from the mindset of working on something uh, and in most of the time I've been writing, I've been write, working quite a senior level. So, I, you know, I'm not just worrying about my own job, but about the future of the organisation. Uh, and it can be, you know, you, you sit down and it takes you an hour or two before you can even get that out of your mind and start writing again. So, you uh, in, in a strange way, I, I I find it sort of miraculous that I have found the time. But, but, but I suppose if you're determined enough, then you do. And it's sort of all I do. You know, it's, my, it's my only hobby, really.
0: And what are you working on next? Do you have another book in the pipeline?
1: I do actually, and and, and more recently I I, I went into self-isolation two months earlier than everybody else because I've sort of given myself a sabbatical, Um, so I'm not on an official sabbatical, I just decided to uh, stop, uh, you know, working on on other things and, and just spend some time writing, which is, now I think about it, a tremendous piece of good luck because I think it would have been very hard to start writing something from what I can gather from social media, lots of writers are really struggling. You know, they've got the time and, and, and the atmosphere, it might be right, but so there's something about the times that makes getting on with a book uh, difficult. I haven't had that problem because I'd already started uh, and so uh, this has been, in, 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 in the very narrow sense of um, being able to devote time writing, a, a really um, blissful and productive period for me. I'm, I'm really motoring on with a, with a new book. As to what it's about, I, I sort of feel as though uh, that really tempts fate really. It's 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 you know it's about something or other and uh, a little bit different, but something of the same tone of peace talks in some ways. Um, but I'm getting on with it, so I'm hopeful
0: I might be able to submit that relatively soon. Great and let's finish off um, with a short reading if we may. Um, I'm going to put myself on mute because I can hear someone drilling in the background and I don't want to disturb your reading, but I'll, I'll come back when you finish, but take it away.
1: Okay, well this is a, a little section from right near the beginning of the book uh, and it's just where Edvard notices that one of the uh, parties for the peace negotiations is reading the Thomas Mann novel, Magic Mountain. Uh, he's reading it in Arabic though. To return to the Magic Mountain for a moment, at some point bringing it up, I couldn't help noticing, might help with the negotiator in question. Little somethings like this sometimes do though the fact that he speaks English so beautifully, so pointedly, gives me pause. Is he signalling something through his choice of reading, and if so, what? Such minefields, darling, I can hear you saying. Having got into our stride across the snowfield, we have to exercise caution on a small wooden bridge, as the planks can be treacherously icy. The bridge crosses a mountain torrent, though for most of the weeks we have spent here, its leaps and limbs have been startlingly frozen. As if by the tap of a winter witch's wand. And let me withdraw the as if straight away. That rushing water can be so astonished into stillness is surely a sign of magic at work and not the agency of ice. Though such is the way of things, the path then takes us straight into a rectilinear stand of pines with no magic about it at all. The trees are numbered and smell of the saw shed and the timber merchant. And next we cross a tarmac road. And outside a row of modern chalets stand BMWs and Volkswagens with skis and snowboards on their roof racks. But that is the last of that. Thereafter, the walk takes us away from the glitter of the resort into more ragged pine and fir forest, to one of the steeper, rockier climbs, until in due course we emerge above the tree line of the mountain and are rewarded with a stupendous panorama of peaks. The thin ice air scintillates our lungs and thrills our faces. The sky is a filled-in blue, the only powder in the wash, the dissolving evidence of an airliner at its most ethereal. Chief, someone says, clapping me on the back with a big bare paw. Yes, I say. The spell must be broken. Some view, isn't it? As I say. My ever presence among the walking party, I've not missed a bay, does not, I trust, inhibit camaraderie. On mountains when we on mornings when we have been in higher spirits, I've joined in the snowball fights and taken my turn on the metal tray, swiped from behind the bar by a grade seven. My tumbling from that tray into a hollow of deep powder provoked much hilarity, yet it's true to say that I tend not to be part of the huddles that form and disperse, that chat and laugh together as we make our way up the mountain. I tend to hang back a bit or stride ahead, absorbed in my own thoughts. And of course, one must be conscious to some degree of one's station, one's position. Even muffled up on the mountain, a certain distance must always be maintained. I'm making you laugh, I can tell. Well, good, because don't think for a moment I'm in low spirits, that I'm lonely, though of course I miss you constantly.
0: Great, thank you very much. It's a really poignant read. I urge you to to buy it, everyone. Um, Book class still available online via indie bookshops and so doing some delivery. So. Look out for it. Thank you very much, Tim, and good luck with the rest of the promotion for the book. Thank
1: you very much, Lucy.